My act today is Act 5 from the, um, the overarching story of Scripture. Act 4, Justin talked to us about last week. Yep. Uh, and that really focused on Jesus' entry into human history. He took us through, Justin took us through how Jesus' life and death and resurrection form the climax of the biblical story. And Act 5 is really focused on how the uh, first followers of Jesus responded to Act 4. So how they responded to the message of Jesus. So we've seen that God's mission is to restore creation following the fall or the rebellion and the corrupting influence of sin. And in Jesus' death, we see God conquering sin. And then through his resurrection, we see that a new era of healing, of salvation has dawned. How then do those people who witnessed God's work in Jesus respond? What role do they play in the coming of the kingdom of God? So Act 5 really concerns the role of Christ's community, the mission of the church. And it's about that in-between time, that time between Jesus' coming and then when he's come, going to come again. Now because this act takes place uh, really from the first century BC right in th- until um, today, we've divided it up into two distinct scenes. So scene one that I'm talking about today is really about the early church that we see in Acts, uh, the spread of the gospel of the good news from Jerusalem through to Rome. Scene two, which uh, Justin, I think, is talking about next week, is about the spread of the good news to the world. So it's from uh, really the, the end of the biblical story to the point today where one in three people on earth uh, identifies as a Christian. So 2.4 billion people now identify as Christians. And that's really the second half that Justin will deal with next week, or the week after. The book of Acts begins with Luke explaining that after Jesus' resurrection, he spends 40 days with his disciples speaking about the kingdom of God and telling them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of that 40-day period, as he ascends into heaven, Jesus tells his disciples that while it's not for them to know when God will restore his kingdom, they are to receive the Holy Spirit and act as Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So my job tonight is that first part of Act 5, from Jerusalem, the early Christians spreading through Judea, Samaria, and eventually to Rome. Now this is a road map that I've put up, uh, just so that you can sort of follow along. Acts is a long book and it's not possible to cover um, all that much of it really in a 20 minute slot so I've divided it into kind of four headings uh, and I'll work my way through those. In the early chapters of Acts we see the early church grow first in Jerusalem and most importantly we see the Holy Spirit poured out to Jesus' followers at Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost was a Jewish harvest festival and a time for Israel to thank God for the blessing of a new season's harvest by presenting its first fruits as an offering. And by presenting that first harvest of a long-awaited crop, Israel anticipated the gathering of the whole crop that was to come. So it's significant then, I think, that God chooses this time to give to the first believers the Holy Spirit. That really is the first fruits of the kingdom of God. 
And Luke describes this event in vivid detail. Christ's followers are gathered all in one place, somewhere in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, because of the festival, is brimming with people from throughout the Roman Empire. So there's people of all sorts of different nationalities and ethnicities and speaking all sorts of different languages. And as they're gathered together, Christ's followers suddenly hear a sound from heaven like the rush of a violent wind. A sound so loud and so full that it fills the entire house that they're in. And then even more astoundingly, they see divided tongues of fire appear among them. And a tongue rests on each and every one of them. So this is pretty crazy stuff. And suddenly, each person is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins speaking in foreign languages. Egyptian, Libyan, Arabic, many, many more. Because of the huge range of people that are in Jerusalem at the time, this event quickly becomes big news. Out of nowhere, this group of Galileans suddenly are walking around speaking in every language about Jesus, representing the climax of God's story. And this sudden outpouring of language is one of the first signs that the gospel is no longer exclusively for Israel. It's for every tribe, every ethnic group, every nation. And it marks in many ways the unification or the restoration of divisions that we saw way back in the second act, uh, Act 2 at the Tower of Babel, when God splits people into different language groups. So fairly quickly, a large crowd gathers around uh, these Galileans speaking all sorts of languages, thousands of people, and Peter stands up to address them. Some in the crowd are sneering at those uh, speaking new languages, mocking them, saying that they're drunk. And Peter addresses those people first. He says, far from being drunk, it's only 9am after all, he points out, they're actually the fulfilment of Joel's prophecy that in the last days God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And he then goes on to argue, Peter does, that those last days have been ushered in by Jesus. That man, he reminds them that they crucified and killed. And standing there with the other 11 disciples as eyewitnesses, he tells the crowd that after Jesus died, they can attest that God raised him up, freeing him from death because he says it was impossible for death, for him to be held in death's power. This Jesus, you crucified, he tells the crowd, God has now exalted to his right hand and has made him both Lord and Messiah. And having himself received the Holy Spirit from his father, Christ has now poured it out on his disciples. So he's really capturing Act 4 in the context of the Acts that went before for those first hearers. And that message, we're told, cut to the heart of many people. On that day, 3,000 were baptised and added to the first Christian community. Now, the first Christian community, I think, is really interesting. And I wanted just to look at a few characteristics of that community uh, because I think it shows us uh, the way in which those people had to wrestle with what difference Jesus made to their lives, what following Jesus looked like for them. Now, Luke uh, describes them. So what, what, I'm going, what I'm going to suggest is that it was both a worshipping community and a caring community. And this is how Luke describes that first community in Acts 2. So those who welcomed his, uh, that's Peter's message, were baptised. And that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. So this was then clearly a very attractive community because in the next sentence after this, um, this verse finishes, Luke tells us that each day God added to their number. And we see in Acts that the early church grows very quickly. But I think it's also important to see that the rapid growth of the early church wasn't one of its goals. In fact, as Tom Sine puts it, throughout the New Testament, growth was never a conscious goal of the church. It was a consequence. And one of those reasons, one of the reasons why growth was a consequence, I think, was because the lifestyle of those first Christians was so attractive to the people they came across. Their lives were really in harmony with the gospel message. They were focused on incarnating the kingdom of God, and they drew people to the gospel. So, the key characteristics of that first Christian community, I think, uh, uh, fall into these two categories. There's a worshipping community and a caring community. And I've stolen these from uh, a theologian some of you might know. Right, so as a worshipping community, those Christians assembled both publicly and privately to worship God. They did so through, firstly, apostolic instruction. So that's the, the devoting of themselves to learning about Jesus. Secondly, they did so through that old-fashioned word fellowship. That is, I think in more modern terms, deep sharing relationships. And throughout the New Testament, we see this call repeatedly in the epistles. Believers are called to welcome one another, to live in harmony with one another, to care for, serve and comfort one another, to bear one another's burdens, be compassionate, hospitable, forgiving to one another to confess sins to one another and to love one another. So it's crystal clear, I think, from the New Testament that Christian, the Christian life is one to be shared with other believers. And I think we see almost immediately that recognition amongst the early church that we need each other and that we need to be held accountable to each other. So instruction and fellowship. The third part of being a worshipping community was eating together for the breaking of bread. For Jews, eating together was the most intimate form of friendship. And I'll touch on this a bit later. So the early Christians, uh, we think, probably would have shared the main meal of each day at each other's homes, and while doing so would have commemorated the Lord's Supper in some way. So instruction, fellowship, eating, the final characteristic is praying together and this really reflected the prayer life of Jesus that we see in Luke's gospel. Prayer for the early church was key to both the spirit's power and to receiving its guidance. Now on the other hand they were also a caring community. 
Perhaps the most striking feature of the church's role as a sharing community is its radical sharing of resources, of both property and money. And this comes up a number of times in Acts. So in the verse that I've got up there, you see Luke saying that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They'd sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And later, a couple of, a couple of chapters later, he records the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as, many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to, to each as any had need. And Luke gives two concrete examples in Acts of this, uh, this kind of sharing of resources. So the first involves a Cyprian Levite called Joseph or Barnabas, and he sells a field that he owns and brings the money to the apostles and lays it at their feet. And hot on the heels of Barnabas come the second example, and that's a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And like Barnabas, that couple also hold a piece of property. And they too choose to sell it and bring the proceeds to the apostles. But when doing so, Ananias and Sapphira secretly hold back part of the money that they've received. And when they turn up to Peter, he immediately picks up the deception and he says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. And on being exposed as a hypocrite and a liar, Ananias drops dead. And then a couple of hours later, Sapphira turns up, not knowing what's happened with Ananias, and she repeats the lie to Peter, and she also drops dead. Heavy stuff. I think a number of... Uh, quick points I can make about this radical sharing of resources. The first is that it was voluntary. There's no indication that anyone told Barnabas or Ananias and Sapphira to sell property and bring the proceeds to the apostles. And also notice that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't not, was not refusing to give property to the community, but attempting to deceive the community. So they were trying to make it look like they were sacrificing much more than they actually were. So rather than radical sharing being compulsory, I think we see that it was a reflection of the powerful sense of unity that was in that early church, and created, I think, probably by the Holy Spirit. So first it was voluntary. Second, there's also a real sense in this, these stories that the early Christians are reinterpreting notions of private property. Luke says, no one said that any of the things he possessed was his own. <coughs> So while individuals still retained possessions, they still possessed things, they also in some way give up their exclusive right to them. The property looks more like it's being treated first and foremost as being for the benefit of the community as a whole. So it's not as if all the early Christians went out and sold everything, because we hear that they, as needs arise, then they sell and liquidate property. And we also see that it's people with houses and lands, so plural, people who have a surplus that are giving to the needy. And I think we see that 
they're viewing money then as a gift from God, as a means to an end, as a way of advancing God's kingdom, not a private possession that they're entitled to hold on to tightly. The third feature of this early uh, experiment is, I think, a dramatic economic effect. Luke tells us that there was not a needy person among them. So just stop and think about that. That's uh, a large community. We've seen well over 3,000 joined in one day. And already within those first few years, there's not a needy person among that group. This really fulfills God's promise to Israel that if it were to obey God, there would be no one in need among you. It also, in a really concrete sense, abolished any distinction of rich and poor amongst those Christians. But the results of this uh, radical sharing weren't just material. It also, Luke tells us, gave those first believers great power as they preached about Jesus' resurrection. That's a sign, I think, that the integrity and beauty of their lifestyle made them more credible witnesses to Christ's resurrection. And I think we all experience that in, in our lives as well. The people who walk the talk are much more convincing than the people who just talk. In the early chapters of Acts, we see Peter and John heal a beggar on the way to the temple. And this immediately draws a crowd, and Peter takes the opportunity to tell them about the good news. Uh, that in Jesus, the Messiah, God's story has reached its climax. And we hear that 5,000 people that day become Christians. And just as a footnote, I really recommend reading uh, that sort of sermon that Peter gives. It's really interesting to read it in the context of what we've been talking about over the last couple of months. Because he really places Jesus at the heart of the, of the Jewish story. Now, the apostles' words very quickly reached the religious elite's ears in Jerusalem, and they, Peter and John, are arrested and brought, uh, were thrown in jail, and then the next day they're brought before the Sanhedrin. But the Jewish leaders are already in a bit of a difficult position because they can't deny that Peter and John have just healed a beggar. They can't deny the miracle that thousands of people uh, have seen and know about. But they're also very worried about the message that's being spread. So they threaten Peter and John and order them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus and then kick them out. The apostles, of course, don't listen. Uh, not only that, despite being uneducated, ordinary men, they tell the council directly that they're not going to stop. We cannot, they explain, keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. So after they're released, Peter and John return to their church community and report what's happened. The community's response is to pray for them and for the continued boldness and power. God then fills them with the Holy Spirit and they go on speaking the word of God with boldness and performing signs and wonders. And as great numbers of men and women join the early church, the Jewish leaders uh, begin persecuting them. They arrest the apostles and put them in prison. They drag them before the council, the Sanhedrin again, and question them. And at this stage, by this stage, we see the leaders are so enraged by what's going on that they want to kill the apostles. They, in the end, decide not to, to be cautious. Uh, they still flog them. 
order them not to preach anymore and then release them. And again, the apostles refused to listen. They continue proclaiming the name of Jesus as Messiah day after day in both the temple, publicly, and in houses, privately. And so I think we see at the beginning, over and over again, in both uh, Acts, and I think in the rest of Christian history, that political persecution fails to prevent the spread of the gospel. And so from Jerusalem, as Christ foreshadows, the gospel then spreads out into the provinces of Judea and Samaria. And strangely enough, that spread looks like it's aided by the persecution against the church in Jerusalem. It scatters those early Christians throughout the provinces, and the message spreads. During this period of persecution, we meet Saul of Tarsus, a zealot who's devoting himself to the persecution and destruction of the church, and in fact the murder of Christians. We see in the middle of Acts him approve of Stephen being stoned to death. And later we see Paul or Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples and asking the high priest for permission to arrest any Christian he encounters in Damascus, man or woman. And I think as we all know, on his way to Damascus, Saul is struck down by a blinding light and he hears a voice call out to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He responds, who are you, Lord? And the reply comes, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul's compatriots who are with them, they hear Christ's voice, but they don't see anything. So they get Paul up and help him, he's now blind, uh, into Damascus. And as a result of this encounter, Saul becomes a follower of Christ. He tells us later that he was told that he would be an instrument to bring his name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. And to that end, he promptly starts uh, preaching the gospel in Damascus. And from this point, we see Paul taking a leading role in the book of Acts as God's spirit uses him. And we see the gospel, which first spread among Jewish people, suddenly jumps and starts spreading amongst Gentile communities. Uh, The story of Peter and Cornelius is is one of the early examples of that. So while Peter's in Joppa, uh, he's staying with a man named Simon, and Simon owns a house by the seaside. And during the middle of the day, Peter goes up onto the roof of the house to pray. While he's up there, he falls into a trance and he sees heaven open up and a blanket or a sheet come down holding all kinds of birds and animals and reptiles. And Peter hears a voice say, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter responds, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that's profane or unclean. And God replies, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. And this interaction between Peter and and God happens three times before the sheep gets taken back up into heaven. And Peter's left kind of puzzling by the seaside, pretty confused. And while he's still sort of wondering what this all means, uh, some men sent by a Roman centurion named Cornelius arrive at the door. And they ask Peter to accompany them back to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. And we uh, Google mapped this a while ago, and it's a sort of a pretty decent walk from um, Joppa to Caesarea. When the group eventually arrives uh, in Caesarea, Cornelius falls at Peter's feet and worships him. Peter's a bit embarrassed by this, and he says, "Get up, stand up. I'm only mortal." 
And he then tells Cornelius and his household, Cornelius is a Roman centurion, you yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. And we saw before that eating with someone was the most intimate form of Jewish friendship and uh, Jewish people just weren't permitted to eat with Gentiles. But he goes on and he says, God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So he's interpreted that, uh, that vision about reptiles and animals, about the, sort of the eating laws, if you like, as extending to people. And it's at this point that we see Peter is absolutely convinced that the gospel is for everyone. He explains to Cornelius, God shows no favoritism. That in every nation he'll accept those who fear him and do what's right. And that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven through his name. This in itself wasn't really a great leap. Because a recurring theme in the Old Testament was, of course, that Gentiles were eventually to share in the promise of Israel. What was shocking, though, at that point, is that God then immediately gives the Holy Spirit to Cornelius and the other Gentiles who are present. This is giving the Holy Spirit to people who are uncircumcised and uncommitted to Judaism. And then witnessing this, Peter baptizes them all in the name of Jesus. So from this point in time, under Paul's leadership, we see really the planned expansion of the church from Antioch into Asia Minor and Europe, and Paul acting as a light for the Gentiles, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. He plants lots of new Christian communities, establishing witnessing communities in every part of the Roman Empire. We see him take time to provide these communities with a solid foundation, passing on the gospel and the scriptures, establishing leadership, instituting the Lord's Supper, and then returning or writing letters in a pastoral role to nurture the community. And in these early stages of growth, a fundamental issue for the early Christians was the relationship between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Paul's standard modus operandi as he travelled around was to begin proclaiming the gospel in the local synagogue. And while some Jews accepted his message, many, perhaps most, didn't, they were generally very reluctant to give up traditions that for so long had safeguarded them as a distinct, special religious group. So from the synagogues, Paul then widens his focus and he begins preaching to Gentiles, who on the whole tended to be more receptive to that message. So the early churches that we see Paul planting are mostly made up of Gentile Christians. And then Paul calls on the Jewish Christians to accept them as equal partners in this renewed Israel of God's kingdom. That call wasn't uh, met without resistance. And we see the very first Jewish Christian communities have to grapple with and eventually decide that Gentiles should uh, be able to share in that first uh, share as equal partners. But the caveat to that for those first Jewish Christians was that Gentiles should at least be required to obey the law of Moses. So they should be circumcised and act really as if they had been born into the Jewish covenant with God. That doesn't go down particularly well. and Matters sort of come to a head in uh, what, what people call the Jerusalem Council. 
And it's at the Jerusalem Council where it's established once and for all, and we obviously take this for granted, I think, now, uh, that Gentiles should be admitted to the church as equal members without needing to observe Jewish cultural practices. And from this point on, the gospel then is free to be accepted in all nations of the world. You don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. Right, so I think that's probably as good a place as any to finish the first half of Act 5. The spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria, uh, Judea to Rome. And Justin, or Lacey maybe, will pick up next week with the second scene, the movement of the gospel from there to the ends of the earth.